All right, guys, turn your copy of God's Word to Romans chapter 14. Romans 14, as you turn there, um, let me just recap real quick where we have been, um, particularly last week, because it's going to set some important context for at least the next two weeks. So last week we talked about the centrality of the great commandment in Scripture. The great commandment, or what's sometimes known as the Shema, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. We saw that both Paul and Jesus tell us that this command is not only important, but that this command sums up the law and the prophets. So if you want to follow the law, Paul says, here's the best summation statement that I can possibly give you. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So that is Paul's counsel to the church in Rome, which is this melting pot of cultural and religious backgrounds. You need to love each other as you love yourself. And when you love other people in the way that you love yourself, you are also engaging in an act of worship because you're engaging in an act of obedience. And we say this all the time about the great commandment, but these are not two individual commands that you can kind of pick and choose from. They are deeply intertwined, and they sort of depend on each other. They rest on each other. So I would say it's impossible for you to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and not love your neighbor as yourself, and vice versa, right? So, so let's kind of hold on to that as we walk through this today. The problem we saw last week, though, was that the Greeks had at least seven different words for love, and the New Testament was written in Greek. So, so we have to some extent consider what do we mean when we read the word love? What's being communicated? Like, what, what's the point when we read the word love? So the Greeks differentiated between all kinds of different things. So friendly affection, for example, was the word philos. Sometimes you'll hear that uh, translated as brotherly love, philos. And philos had a lot to do with feeling and emotion and affection. Um, and, and we see that word in the New Testament. Other Greek words we talked about last week uh, for love uh, were words like eros, which is romantic, or carnal love, or the word stergo, which relates to natural affection, so like a parent to a child. But what we saw was that there is one Greek word that dominates the landscape of the New Testament, and it is the word agape. Most often, when we read the word love in the New Testament, we are reading the word agape. It is the word that is used to describe the love of Christ, the love of God. If you're reading John 3.16, for God so agaped the world, for God so loved the world. And the defining characteristic of this love is that it is self-sacrificial. It is self-sacrificial. It isn't simply affection. It isn't simply feeling. It isn't simply emotion. It is action. And it is self-sacrificing action. And in fact, we could even say the word agape is largely defined by Jesus and by his life. And so it's in contrast 
to philos. It's in contrast to this feeling-based, emotion-based thing, which is maybe what we most often mean when we talk about love. When I talk about loving other things, I often am really talking about how I feel about those things, not so much what I, what I do towards those things or how I act towards those things. Agape, however, is about what you do. And so again, John three sixteen, for God so loves the world, he did something. He sent his only son, Christ, to die so that we might be reconciled to him. So when we hear the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, the word we're reading there is the word agape. We are being called, the church in Rome is being called to self-sacrificial love for each other. Not just to be kind to each other, not just to be good friends, not just to feel affectionate towards each other but to self-sacrifice and to do so because this is the example of Christ. Not to do so because other people deserve it, but maybe even precisely because they don't deserve it because that's what we see modeled in the way of Jesus. And so he wrapped up chapter 13 by saying this, like how in the world do we go about this? What steps do we need to take to pursue this? He wraps it up by saying we have to put on Christ. It's like this, we have to wake up every morning and like step into him or like clothe ourselves in him. We have to wear him as a garment and we have to make no provision for the flesh. We have to put Christ on. If we have any hope of doing this, we have to look to him. We have to seek to emulate him. We have to seek to model him in our everyday life. So with those things in mind, let's read our text today, Romans 14. As for the one who is weak in faith... Welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. This is the word of the Lord. So Paul shifts slightly here from calling the church to display agape love towards each other and to put on Christ to seemingly telling them to not be judgy. Right? Isn't that interesting? 
that after calling people to self-sacrificial love and to put on Christ and to emulate Christ, the very first place he goes after that is towards judgmentalism. It's towards how we look at, perceive, interact with brothers and sisters in Christ. But here's the reality. Not being judgy is an act of self-sacrifice. It's an act of self-sacrifice. Rather than just tolerating each other or even just being kind to each other, Paul says, I want you to lay down your prideful need to be right, your prideful need to feel superior, your prideful need to be better than anybody else. Any arrogance, any superiority, any better-than-ness that you may feel towards a brother and sister in Christ is a lack of love in this paradigm. It is you displaying the opposite of agape love towards them. And you need to lay it down. You need to sacrifice it on the altar of Christ and his grace. So, so let's take a moment. I want to walk through this text a little bit. I want us to get a sense of kind of what's going on here contextually. And then I want us to look at a tool that the early church developed that I think is supposed to help us with this on some level. So let's start here, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. I know none of us have ever experienced anything like that in the church. No, that doesn't happen today, but it was happening a lot back then, quarreling over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Now, we can read this today in 2020 and out of context, really just blaze through this, not have any clue of what we're talking about here. Like, we don't have a scandal going on in the church right now related to vegetarianism, right? Like, that's not something really any of us are struggling with at the moment. But you better believe this was a central and predominant issue within the early church. So Paul frames his argument in this way. There are some who are strong in the faith, and there are some who are weak in the faith. And in the context of Rome, and in the context of Covenant Shreveport, all those folks are together. People who are strong in the faith, people who are mature in the faith, and people who are weak in the faith are being thrown together into this one thing, into this one place, into this one time. And they have the added kind of pressure of like actual physical persecution going on, like, like the actual threat of real violence being done to them and their families because of what they claim, because of what they believe about Christ. And, and so he begins in this place. We're not all the same. We're all in different places on the journey. We're all in different places of development. But one thing to note here, by the way, is this, also, this is not like a seniority thing, by the way. It, this isn't something that relates to like the amount of time that somebody has spent in the church. The amount of time that you've been a Christ follower or the amount of time that you've been a part of a local church, ideally, it should be indicative of like your level of maturity in the faith. But I think most of us know that that's not always true. That's not always true. Rather, strength and weakness, maturity and immaturity in the faith are far more connected to submission to Christ than they are to like experience and education. Right? 
Maturity in the faith is far more connected to submission to Christ than it is to the fact that I've been going to church my whole life. I know the Bible backwards and forwards. I maybe even know a little bit about theology and doctrine. It's really not about your education level. It's about your submission level, right? It's not about can I stand up and teach. It's really about can I kneel? Am I willing to come before him and give him everything and submit my life to him? So essential conflict for the Roman church and for many within the early church in general, had to do with religious customs. Um, As we've said, an issue in Rome was that Jews and Gentiles were thrown together. And so the Jews come with all of these beautiful religious customs. They come with this rich, like theological, ecclesiological tradition. They also come with a lot of baggage, surrounding those things. The Gentiles, on the other hand, were far more influenced by paganism and just kind of general irreligion or agnosticism. And so not only do they not have a lot of those religious customs that the Jews had, they also didn't have a lot of respect for the Jewish religious customs. They weren't interested in them. They didn't want to have to follow them. And, And so most notably here, What foods could and could not be eaten was an ongoing issue because the Jews, good Jews, followed strict dietary laws, which had been given to them by God, right? So maybe you can start to pick up on some of the tension here. Like the Jews are looking at some of their rituals, like some of their festivals, some of the laws that they observe, and they look at them and go, we're doing these things because God has told us to do these things. And yet the reality was over time, even though those things had originally come from God, over time they'd been expanded and deepened, more rules had been added, and and so it had become something other than maybe the law that we see in the first five books of the Bible. It had grown and expanded and developed and become something other than just that. But it remained a central conflict. Gentiles felt like we can eat whatever we want to eat. Jews felt like, no, 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 you can't. I I can't believe you would say that you believe in Christ and and God and, and that you would eat these terrible things. So this continued to plague the church. It was an issue for Peter in the New Testament. Paul talks about it constantly. And it is just this central tension in the church. Just the religious system of Judaism itself. Many Jews felt like, surely, I mean, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, right? Jesus is the one who's long been foretold by the Jewish prophets. Surely someone has to become Jewish to follow Christ. Surely somebody has to, like, take on all of the accoutrement of Judaism in order to be a good Christian. Whereas Paul, who was a Jew, asserted that, no, 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 no. We're now living in a new covenant, guys. This is a covenant that Jesus spoke of. It's a covenant that has been established based on his body and his blood. We're now living in this new age. And the old Mosaic laws and regulations, they've been fulfilled by Christ. We've already seen him talk about this in the Roman letter. And, And that what really remains of the Old Testament law is the moral law. The Ten Commandments, the Great Commandment that we've talked about today, these things remain because they all really predated the Mosaic Law as well. Look with me at verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced 
in his own mind. So another issue on top of the whole dietary thing, another issue that's going on here has to do with the significance of certain days, namely the Sabbath. Namely the Sabbath. So Jews for centuries had observed the Sabbath on what day? Saturday. For centuries, that had been the day of worship, of rest, of soul rest. However, very early on in the Christian church, people began to observe Sunday as the day of worship. And there are a couple reasons for this. First of all, we kind of talked about it, but as there is this massive influx of Gentiles into the church who have no context for Saturday as the Sabbath, they begin to worship on Sundays. And the reason why they did that was because Jesus was resurrected on a Sunday. And so Sundays very quickly come to be known as, quote-unquote, the Lord's Day. And it happens so quickly, in fact, that we actually see some evidence of it in the book of Acts, that the church, the followers of Christ, were breaking bread together in their homes on Sundays. And we also see it in the book of Revelation, quite possibly the last book that was written in the New Testament. I think it's Revelation 1. We see John, the apostle who wrote Revelation, specifically refer to the Lord's day. So within 40, 50 years for sure of Jesus' death and resurrection, Christians were actively worshiping him on Sundays. And it was an issue, as you can imagine, early on. Everybody doesn't agree, right? Everybody has their opinion. You have Jews looking down their noses at Gentiles for eating whatever and pushing for Sunday worship. And you have Gentiles snubbing Jews for not experiencing freedom in their diet and wanting to continue a myriad of religious observances. And very quickly, the rhetoric becomes I can't believe that somebody would call themselves a Christian and do that. I can't believe that somebody would call themselves a Christian and do that or think that or go in that direction. Or if you aren't willing to worship on Sundays, I'm just not so sure that you're even a Christ follower. I'm not so sure if you're not really practicing the Sabbath on Saturday that you're actually a Christ follower. So, you see kind of what's going on here. Things get judgy, and the element being judged is faith. Like, are you authentic? Are you a real believer? Are you actually a follower of Jesus? So again, I'm being sarcastic. I know this never happens today, right? I know that we don't do this at all. But yet, to try to extrapolate this into today's world, here's some things I've heard. Some of these very recently. Maybe, maybe you've heard some of these things as well. I can't believe someone could be a Christian and be a Democrat. Vote for Donald Trump. Drink alcohol. Smoke cigarettes. Dance. Go to a casino. Say something racist. Attend a gay wedding. Get divorced. Get pregnant outside of marriage. I think if somebody does some of these things, then they, they just must not be a Christian. You ever heard that? Thought that? Hmm. Now listen, the intention is not to say that all of these things I've mentioned are positive or good or acceptable. To point out, though, that we regularly call into question the faith of other people based on nothing more than the exterior signs. I can't believe somebody who's really a follower of Christ would feel anxiety or fear about COVID. 
I can't believe somebody who's really a follower of Christ would ever leave their home during COVID because they could potentially infect somebody else. I can't believe somebody who would call themselves a follower of Christ wouldn't say Black Lives Matter and vice versa. I've heard all of these things recently. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm a follower of Jesus, and I still mess up and do sinful things. My guess is you do too. My guess is that's the reason why we all need a Savior in the first place, right? So if your position is, I can't see how someone could be a Christian and sin, I can't see how somebody could be a Christian and mess up or make the wrong choice or make an unwise decision, then you have perhaps left reality. Jesus speaks about this, by the way. He, he talks about uh, specks and logs. Do you remember this? He talked, he talked about the fact that we are so eager to look at the lives and the indiscretions and the sins or the perceived sins or the actions of other people and judge those things and make comments on those things and assume things about other people. And yet we have absolutely no ability to look at ourselves and judge ourselves. And if there's anything that the New Testament calls us to judge, it is ourselves. And it is our own sin. It's how do you fall short? What are your issues? Right? What are the things that you can't believe that you do? Even the Apostle Paul, as we've seen in Romans, goes, I do the things I know I shouldn't do. He's looking at himself and going, what a wicked person I am. Like how desperately in need of a Savior am I? So here's the thing. The scriptures are clear on two big points. One, we cannot allow our opinion of another believer's level of faith, no matter what they've done, we cannot allow our opinion of their level of faith to change the way that we love them. It is our place to love with this self-sacrificing, agape love. And if we are conditioning our self-sacrificial love on their actions, then we are completely missing the example of Christ, who, while we were sinners, died for us, who humbled himself to the point of death, who displayed this for us in spite of the fact that we did not deserve it at all. So that's one. Secondly, we are incapable, we are incapable, we are incapable of judging the part of a person that actually tells the story of their faith, which is their heart. You go back to the story of David, the book of Samuel. You've got this evil King Saul, whom the Lord has afflicted with an evil spirit. Saul's just going off the rails, right? And so the Lord anoints a new king, and it's David. And, and he sends his prophet Samuel to call the sons of Jesse before him. So Jesse is this man who has a bunch of sons, and Samuel starts looking at each of them, and the oldest kind of steps up, and he's this like masculine, strong, handsome man. And Samuel thinks, that's got to be the one. But what the Lord says to him is, don't look at the outward appearance don't look at the outward appearance. Instead, listen to me because I'm able to see the thing you cannot see. And that is the heart. So we have absolutely no ability, right, to see the internal. 
And so our judgment is inherently flawed. At best, it is inherently flawed. We never have the whole story. So, so does that mean that we should never call into question the faith of other people? based on their stated beliefs or actions? Or should we never call out like obvious sin? Should we just love in spite of it and just kind of press on and not say anything about it? Well, actually, no. No, no, no. Rather, we have to differentiate between issues of primary importance and issues of secondary importance, right? In Romans 14, Paul is dealing with issues of secondary importance, dietary restrictions and days of the week. Now, you better believe they seemed like issues of primary importance to Jews, right? You're messing with the Sabbath. You're messing with the Sabbath, right? You're messing with the law that God has given to us. So you better believe that they looked at these things as issues of primary importance. But in reality, they are issues of secondary importance. Importance. And we don't have time to go into all of this this morning, but the Bible does call the church as well to call out sin within the body. It calls us to call out sin within the body, but never for the primary purpose of condemning a person or excommunicating a person or anything like that, and, and never for the purpose of judging the faith of a person, but for the purpose of lovingly guiding that person into deeper maturity in Christ, Right? I don't love you if I see sin in your life and say nothing about it and let it just go on, right? That is the opposite of love. Like if we're bearing one another's burdens, if we're seeking to sharpen one another and build one another up, then the goal is not simply to call out your sin to condemn you, but to lovingly guide you into deeper maturity in Christ, which comes from repentance. It's true for all of us. We cannot go deeper without repentance. And repentance is this lifelong thing. It's not when I walked an aisle at some point as a kid and I repented of everything. No, no, no. This is like a daily thing. Like we need the Lord's grace every day and we need to confess our sin and seek to move past it every day. It's why we confess our sins when we gather together on Sunday mornings. Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So again, there's this, you've been bought at a price thing. Like, Jesus has died for you. I know that after my departure, look, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. So Paul cautions the church, like, listen, there are like wolves seeking to devour followers of Christ. There are even people who are in the body who may potentially rise up and say wicked things, twisted things. And so he calls elders, pastors, overseers, shepherds to be on watch for those things. Note that that's something that those people have primarily been tasked with. Our task is to be watchful over our own life, right? The lives of our family members. Early on, the church developed a tool that was meant to provide everyone with an understanding of what was of primary importance. And this tool is called the Apostles' Creed. Um, 
Apostles' Creed was probably developed somewhere in the 200s, maybe 300s. Um, it was not necessarily something that any of the apostles like sat and wrote down, but it is like a distillation of the significant teaching points that the apostles handed down to the early church. And creeds were indispensable in the early church because no one had a Bible. Right? The Bible isn't even codified into the form that we have until the 300s. And it's certainly not mass-produced until many centuries later. So for the vast majority of Christian history, people have not had a physical biblical manuscript in their home, and certainly people haven't had many of them. There was even a time when many churches didn't even have a Bible. And if they had a Bible, it was quite possibly in Latin, which over time became a language that very few people spoke except those who were extremely educated. And so you had people who were coming to church with no education, and they're hearing priests read from the Bible in Latin, but they don't speak Latin, and they don't understand Latin. And, and amazingly, that didn't change in the Roman Catholic Church until the 1960s, that the Mass was held in Latin. So for the longest time throughout history, people have not had access to a Bible, but what they did have access to were, were the creeds. And so the Apostles' Creed was a way of helping you memorize the essentials, the basics of Christian faith, because very early on in the church, this exact thing is happening. Wolves are coming in. People are saying all kinds of crazy things. And it's not just we need to worship on Sunday instead of Saturday. It's, it's like literally changing the nature of what this was to begin with. Who is Christ? Who is God? What is the gospel? What is salvation? What is justification, sanctification? All of these things. You have people who stand up and go, no, it's not that. It's this. And could not be more wrong. Could not be more off. That's called heresy in the history of the church. But how do you battle that? Like, how do you battle it if you don't have the text? If you can't go, well, no, 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 it actually says here in Paul's letter to Rome, this and this and this and this. If you don't have that, what do you do? So the creeds were developed. And so here's what I want to do this morning, real quick. I want us to stand together. I want us to read aloud the Apostles' Creed I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. One of the earliest church heresies involved the deity of Christ. You know, he was a good guy. He was a prophet. Um, he spoke truths from the Lord but son of God, no way. Or no, he's, he's kind of this other being and he's filled with light. And if you take in the things he's teaching, you also will take on this mysterious knowledge that no one else had. and You will become filled with light. Uh, you had people who said, well, you know, he, he, he might be the son of God, but I don't, I don't think he actually died. I think maybe he just kind of passed out 
and then they put him in the tomb, and he came to again. So like all of these things, very quickly, like within the first 50 to 100 years, these things start to become a part of the problem as wolves start to descend on the church. And so even today, here's, 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 my, here's my take on this. The creeds were absolutely essential in a day and age when no one had access to the scriptures, but that they are, this, something like the Apostles' Creed is just as prescient today because even though most of us have a Bible in our home, very few of us read it. I mean, you can go in any hotel in America and find a Bible, but very few people read it. Even people who go to church, very few actually read it. So how do I even know what's in there? How do I even know how to respond to things that pop up today in this crazy time that we live in? I think the Apostles' Creed is something that we should all memorize. Like, it's something we should all take to heart. And when we're asking the question, what's primary, what's secondary, this is where we can start and go, you know what I think's primary? I think it's primary that God is the creator of all things. All right, let's just start there. That seems very basic to us, maybe, but yet there are plenty of people out there who would say, no, that's not true. Something else happened, right? So that may seem like a small thing to some of us or something we accepted a long time ago, but yet there are plenty of people who would say, no, 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 that's not the case. Notice we go from there to Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. For those of us who've come up in the church who've been believers for a long time, we go, well, yeah, of course, that's who Jesus is. But Lord, how many people are out there who would go, no, 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 that's not who Jesus is. Come on, right? This is of primary importance. He was born of the Virgin Mary. That was a significant note of heresy in the early church. That, you know, that whole virgin birth thing, that didn't really happen. No, no, no. He was born of a virgin. There's something miraculous going on here with Christ. Right? He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He, he went through this torture. He was crucified. He actually died. He was buried. He descended to the dead, which if you've read the creed before, it will sometimes say something like he descended into hell which is the, the creedal way of basically saying that, no, 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 not only did he die, but he went to the place of the dead. Like he literally descended to the dead. And then on the third day, he rose again. This was real. He, he literally had died and gone to the place of the dead, and then he comes back, and then he ascends into heaven. He's now seated at the right hand of the Father. And what's going to happen? That's not the end of the story. He's going to come back. He's going to bring judgment with him. He's going to judge those who are living. He's going to judge those who are dead. But he's triune, right? God is. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Yet another point that there were massive heresies surrounding. You know, God is one God, but he's three persons. And so you have all of these people who say all of these different things about this. The creed says, it's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Holy Catholic Church. That's a lowercase c. We don't mean the Roman Catholic Church. We mean the universal church, right? That we aren't the only Christians in this world. And, and there are Christians in, in many churches around this city and many other parts of the world worshiping Christ. And we are all the body of Christ. This place is not the body of Christ. You are the body of Christ and you are connected 
to others. All of these things are happening. The communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, that we will be bodily resurrected as well, that we will be given a perfected body, and that we will have life everlasting. Guys, these are the essentials. These are things where if there's one of these where you go, no, I don't believe that, then what you're saying is, I'm not a Christian. That's how, like, important these are. These aren't opinions. These are facts. These are truths, and we cannot deviate. Now, so notice how the text ends today. Verse 12, what does he say? He says, there is coming a day when you are going to give an account. Not for somebody else in your church family or even in your biological family. You're going to give an account for you, your life. What have you done? How have you loved? What have you done with what God has given you? Notice our gospel reading this morning, the sheep and the goats, one of the scariest passages in the scriptures, right? Which relates totally to what? Action, right? What did you do? It's not just did you feel affectionate about the poor or those who are in prison, right? It's what did you do? So let us go to him this morning, carrying that thought, thinking about our lives, going into Thanksgiving week with our family, where the temptation to be judgmental is going to be right in your face. And let us look instead inward at our own hearts. And let's ask the question, God, how can I truly love those around me with a self-sacrificing Agape love, what about my pride needs to change? What do I need to put down? How can I show the humility of Christ to those around me, loving them deeply in the way that you have loved us? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace, because without it, we have no hope whatsoever. Lord, we give you praise and honor. We thank you for your word even though it is challenging. We pray, God, that today your word would not return void, that we would not just uh, listen, but that we would truly hear what you have to say to us. God, forgive us when we look at other people and make judgments about the state of their relationship to you, something not only we have no business doing, but we have no real ability to do. But God, at the same time, help us to be on guard in our own hearts and within our church as well, Father. Being careful to keep short accounts with each other. Being careful to root out sin and to seek restoration and repentance, not condemnation. So that we might bring honor and glory and fame to your name. Help us, Lord, because we cannot do this without you and your spirit. I ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Stand with us.